You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Vincent Puglisi, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Who do you surround yourself with? We are a product of our upbringing. For many of us, this means we develop values and beliefs about money and work from our parents. Our communities, however, also play a role. It is in these communities that we learn a joint value system, a blueprint for how to approach and interact with the world. It's easy to underestimate the profundity of this effect. I grew up in two cities, two vastly different cities. One was wealthy, one not so much. The first was tough and streetwise, the second business-wise. One was textured and varied, the other homogenous. Although I learned essential life skills from both these communities, my mind has etched a hard line in the sand that separates these contrasting elements of my childhood. The two cities were just miles apart. My first 13 years, I grew up in an urban-feeling city. By no means a poor community, the economics varied. The homeless littered throughout the downtown sharply contrasted the wealth of the dwellers in the lakefront mansions. There were bad areas, areas one wouldn't wander around alone at night. Occasionally, there was gun violence. Humans were more gritty, faces came in all different shapes and colors. People got ahead because they hustled. Dreams were big but not expansive. When you don't come from money, you don't know the heights money can attain. They woke up early and went to bed late. You learned quickly how to communicate, how to read your friends and enemies. You could afford toughness when it was safe, but you had to know when to back down, when you were over your head. At such a young age, I learned these things. I learned how to hustle and how to read people. I learned how to survive on the street and how to blend in with those not like me how to be both educated and grounded, how to be inquisitive about others' differences and not scared of said differences. I couldn't imagine being financially and personally successful without learning such things. Then we moved. Before starting high school, we moved a few miles down the road. We might as well have traveled a world away. Everybody mostly looked the same. There were fancy houses and fancy cars. School children buzzed about their family's newest purchases or daddy's high-powered job. There was privilege, but don't get me wrong. There was also intense drive, drive to be the best student or best athlete or best artist. Dreams were expansive and imaginative. There was no idea too big, purchase too expensive or goal too unattainable. These kids walked the earth with a confidence only gleaned by watching their parents become titans of some vast organization or another. Nothing was going to stop them from being every ounce as successful as their parents or more. 
In high school, I learned how to tackle ideas and problems with a confidence and a self-assuredness that I had never had in my previous environment, how to walk the world as if a titan and make myself felt and listened to, how to fail spectacularly, tend to my wounds, and start over again. I couldn't imagine being financially and personally successful without learning such things. So who do you surround yourself with? What difference does it make? I could tell you all sorts of flowery things about Vincent Puglisi. I could tell you how he is a genius at masterminding, an acclaimed podcaster, and author of the book Freelance to Freedom, an award-winning photojournalist, and a thriving business creator and builder. But if you really want to know why Vincent stands out so much in my mind, it's the little things. The random instant messages checking in, the intentionality of a style of communication, the carefulness in which he manages connections. Simply put, he is a master at the horrendously difficult task of forming relationships. At the beginning of my intro, I asked, who do you surround yourself with? For me, the answer is undoubtedly people like Vincent. Vincent Puglisi, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Well, that was like one of the best overall intros I've ever heard in a podcast. First of all, your story was so engaging. And thank you for such a wonderful introduction to me. It's just a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. And we had you on an episode about creativity and financial independence. You know, that creativity discussion at that time was talking about your photojournalism. But I think creativity spans almost all aspects of everything we do. So I suspect it'll be part of our conversation today also. Absolutely. So Vincent, in medicine, we have this concept of a biopsy, a small piece of tissue that is representative of the whole. We talk about biopsies in reference to cancer, but there are also lots of reasons to biopsy healthy tissue. I'd like to examine under the microscope a specific time in your life, a biopsy, so to speak. What was happening around the time you got interested in photojournalism? Where were you in life? That's a fun and a tough one to talk about. I was lost. And I talk about in the book, I went six years of just not knowing what to do. And those were formative years when everybody else was figuring out what college to go to or, or what their life was going to be like. You know, I was just trying to figure something out. And I think I had dropped out of community college five times. It takes a special person to drop out of community college five times, especially community college. But that was just where I was at. Literally got arrested while I was a major in criminal justice. That's pretty ironic. And that pretty much killed that part of my career. I was absolutely lost. I don't think I doubted myself. I resonated with both ends of your intro in terms of what you live with. So I grew up in an affluent community, but we weren't affluent. In my early age, we were in Queens, New York, and there wasn't much money around. There rarely was. So I had a little bit of both. I got to see what the other side did, but I also had the grit that I wasn't getting that money and I needed to go fight for it and work for it myself. It's very much, you know, Joshua Tree, U2, the album, and, which comes from two Americas is what they said, two different worlds. So where was I? I was lost and desperate, and I literally had a nightmare that I was caught stealing again, which I wasn't like I was before. I went downstairs completely just confused for the first time. I thought I was doing fine just being who I was. No aspirations. You know, my dad came downstairs, and we didn't get along. I basically said to him, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I know a lot of people I've talked to were in the same exact boat after that. And he said, well, you like photography. You like sports. You like traveling. Why don't you become a photographer? That simple. But when you're lost and you have nothing, you know, I said to myself, I'm going to do this. I'm at 2.30 in the morning. It was May of 1994. I'm going to fail at this, but at least it's going to be cool. And that changed me. I'm going to fail at something cool because I had no expectations of succeeding because I never did. But it gave me an opening of like, there's nothing to lose here. There's no expectations. I don't have teachers or parents are saying like, 
well, you got the degree. Now you better go. It was a blank slate and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So that's kind of how it started. And at that point, you were very open to what your father was telling you. Was that a common thing? Like, did you listen to your father a lot or was this a pivoting point? When you get so desperate, you actually listen to people with wisdom. And there's a lot of points in all of our lives that we're not desperate enough. And desperation can be a really bad thing, but it can be a really good thing. A year earlier, I wouldn't have listened to him. You don't know what you're talking about. Same thing now. You know, I talk to 19-year-olds and you laugh. Like, I'm not trying to impart my wisdom on somebody that doesn't want to hear it, but you have no idea. Like, we were just talking in the mastermind about what if there is a recession? So many business owners I talk to now do not remember or weren't a part of it in 2008. They're blind to it. That's fine. But if they're not open, all of a sudden in three years, they'll be like, I wish I would have listened. I was in that same exact spot then. So in a sense, the first community you built around yourself was a community of one, your father who previously was always there, but maybe you weren't open to listening to him up until that point. It was a community of one for one day. I quickly went on my own again. You know, the saying, you don't notice a red car at all, but until you go to buy one, then you notice them everywhere. It was a similar thing there. Like I grew up needing grit. And I thought it's the only way to be successful was to do it on my own. So everything I did, all my stories, and I'm literally writing my next book about this, all my stories, as I look back on it, it was me. You know, every time I was successful with something, I fought for it. I was the one that had to grind it out. And I had this me against the world type of attitude. And it served me for a period of time. But then once later on, as I look back, it wasn't me. It was all the people that opened doors for me. It was my dad on that night. It was Jim Jordan from NFL Films that got me on the field for my first press pass. I did the grit work of getting to the front row, but he's the one that had the press pass that got me on. Every story of my life, there was somebody that opened the door for me. You need grit to a certain point. You need selfishness to a certain point. But from there, it's the communities and the network that you grow around it that will expand and open up all the doors for you. Do you think at that point, talking to your father, where your brain congeals and you say, okay, I can do photography, I'm interested in sports, did you also have that understanding that it was time to let in other people to help you or had that thought not formed yet? It's interesting how your brain evolves. It did, but it did in a very selfish way. How can these people help me? Who do I need to know to do these things? When you're in that point, it's all about me. It was not generosity. It was not, how do I form a community? How do I become a healthy part of a community? I'm just being completely honest. It was, how can I connect with the people that I need to connect with or meet the people that I need to get to? That's where my mind was then. And is that the first step you took after that momentous occasion with your father? What was your next step? My next step was, how do I get around them? Is this really a job? Is this really a career? I was not told this was a job in school. I wish I could have went back and started over. I'm like, my guidance counselor on my report card said he doesn't pay attention to the books we're reading. All he cares about is sports. At that point in fifth grade, why wouldn't it be? How do we guide this kid? You know, he's five, nine and a half and he's slow as molasses. He's probably not going to play sports, but maybe he could be a broadcaster. Maybe he could be a photographer, maybe a statistician. Something where he could be in the world that he wants to be a part of. That was never considered. That's my biggest struggle with the school world is it's not guiding you towards where your dreams and passions are, at least for me. So at that moment, you did what the school system couldn't do for you. You decided to surround yourself with people doing that thing that sounded most exciting to you. How did you go about doing that? Where did you go? This became my major, (laughs) my sixth or seventh major. I bought the cheapest ticket 
to any game in the New York area that I could not only learn how to be a better photographer, but meet the people that were actually doing what my dream job would be. As you study it and you research it, you go, okay, where are they? They're in the photo wells of these stadiums at 7.30 at night shooting baseball games or hockey games. How do we get there? Because they're not giving me a press pass to get me on the field. So you would buy a ticket and wander down to the press area and try to insinuate yourself nearest to whatever photographer you could and just start chatting? I tried to do that, but there's security. (laughs) And it's worse now than it used to be. It was much better in 1995 than it is now. Now there's cameras everywhere and they can see where you're at. Also, right now, there's much more easier access online. For those listening, in 1995, you couldn't go on the internet to a forum or a podcast. There was none of that. Where do you go? So I first called and wrote letters to 100 plus newspapers and magazines, got rejected by every one of them. I had no experience. Who am I? You know, then I was like, okay, let me go to the Mets game on Tuesday night. Oh, there's the photographers. Oh, I see their picture in the paper the next day. So what I did was I would try to sneak down, but I saw security and I got blocked. Like you said in the very beginning, start figuring out the nuances of the way people act and the way people think. And I watched the security. I figured out their cadence. I figured out their routine of coming up to the top of the aisle in between innings, staring at the crowd, and then they walk back down to the front by the dugout. So I'm like, okay, let me get in front of them. And then when they walk down towards the dugout, I just follow behind them for half. And I sit down in an empty seat. They get down, they stare at the crowd, then they come back up. And as soon as they came back up, as soon as they got past me, I stepped down and I walked down. Within one inning, I was in the front row of every game, first or second row. So from there, my pictures got better because I was closer, I would be annoying. I would tap the photographer on the shoulder and I would say, what camera are you using? What kind of film are you using? Who do you work for? And I would do this four or five nights a week. I had the ability to be able to do it. It didn't cost very much money, but that's how the relationship started developing. That's how the information started getting there. And that's eventually what led to my first internship, which led to my first job, which led to my first major reward and so on and so on. Was there any formal educational path you could have or took at that time or was it all experience? Now it was my sixth major, photography at Nassau Community College. I took almost every major you could possibly have. I was taking formal training there, but this was the real training I needed. I was about to say, give us more information there. Contrast the education you were receiving in the classroom versus the education that you got from standing next to all the photojournalists down on the field or close to it. Not to disparage any of my professors, but they were teaching me still life. I had no interest in still life. If you know my personality, you might as well just put me against the wall and shoot me if I have to photograph still life. I want action. I want connection. I want relationships. I want moments. I want history. I want access to these things going on. Still lifes and portraits didn't interest me, but that's part of the curriculum. So when we got to the photojournalism part of it, I was like, let's go. But also by the time we got to that part of it, I literally had students coming up to me asking me how I just photographed Michael Jordan the night before. And I'm like, nobody gave me access to that. I drove to New Jersey and I snuck down to the front and I got a picture, a crappy picture of Michael Jordan. But 25 years later, I still have a picture of Michael Jordan, which is pretty cool. I remember one girl one time saying like, how do I get your job? And I'm a student at community college. I'm like, I don't have a job. This is not a job. This is what I do when we leave school. I just didn't understand the passive mindset of I'm going to wait for somebody else to tell me to do it. And did you find that as a student standing next to these experienced photojournalists that they were willing to share some knowledge or answer your questions or did they just brush you off? Depends on the photographer. It's a very competitive industry. A lot of people were helpful to a point. They're helpful until you're serious. And then it creeps in like this is my potential competition. 
I did have a couple of people that took me under their wing a little bit as much as they could. Paul Bear as well from Newsday was my idol photographer. Like he's not well known, but he should be. He was just so gracious and helpful and gave me support. I would bring pictures to the games and ask them. Something about getting validation from people that you look up to really just fuels that fire. I didn't need very many. I just needed one or two to say, you can keep doing this. That was a big deal for me. It sounds like these were your first brushes with mentorship. And as you went further in your career and left photojournalism, you eventually decided to enter the full-time photography business. I'm wondering the skill set that you gleaned in the stands, meeting photojournalists, this idea of surrounding yourself, aligning and spending time with people who were doing what you were doing already. Was it a lot easier when you started your photography business than it was when you first had to climb into the stands and talk to these complete strangers? Oh, much easier. The beginning is always the hardest. The beginning in everything you do, starting a podcast, running a community, it's, the beginning is the hardest. But there's a story from, I think it was 1976, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They were an expansion team and they were so bad. But when you start an expansion team, you need to get players just to play. And John McKay was the coach. They said, what do you think about the execution of your team? And he goes, I'm all in favor of it. Because they meant, they meant the execution of like the way they play. He's meaning talking about executing because they were so bad. But Three years later, they were in the NFC Championship game because they had to start somewhere. They had to start with some players and then replace the bad ones with the good ones. I think it's the same thing here. You build your community, you build your network, and in the beginning, you're not connected to people that are really going to lift you up. And you need to understand, like you said, reading the room, like reading what people's intentions are, reading what people's generosity is, who's in it and they're not trustworthy, or who has integrity that you want to spend more time with and less time with these people that are really looking at it for just them. So when you started your non-photojournalism photography business, did you find a similar community of people to learn from and become mentored by? Sometimes I'll learn slowly. And when we went there, I kind of had a very similar mindset. It was like, we got to build our business. And a lot of other photographers had the same thing. And I wonder if my vision of it muddy their vision of it. But when you're thinking of it in terms of how do I build my business, it's very self-involved. You're the center of attention, not the center of influence. I was the center of attention and it revolved around how do we build this? So it was like, oh, can they refer work to us? Yeah, I'll refer work back to them. It was very much, and it's embarrassing to say it, but it was very much like you scratch my back, I scratch yours. People say that, but it's not a good thing. That implies that somebody does something for you first. So you learn through the school of hard knocks, you learn along the way, even though we're successful, this and this, I still wasn't knowledgeable or adept in terms of building a great community around me because it still was me focused at that point. It's just complete honesty. We were successful and we had great associations and great acquaintances, but we didn't have great connections and genuine network. I've seen the quote on your website while talking about your success. You said, at one point in your life, I set out to build a team I longed to be a part of. Yes. To me, that sounds like a pivot point, slightly different than what you did when you were building that general photography practice. So what happened? When did you make that pivot intellectually and what changed? I met people like Seth Godin and people that preached this stuff and lived it. And then... I literally, there was a turning point for me where a guy named Jared Wickerham connected me. I always wanted to shoot the Stanley Cup final. It was one event that I never got to do. And then all the lessons that I learned along the way that didn't sink in totally, like he connected me to an agency. And all of a sudden, just like that, because of my network, 
I didn't shoot any hockey games the entire year. And the first game I walk into is when the Penguins can win the Stanley Cup. And the other photographers were mad at me because, like, we busted our butts all year. And here you just walk in here and now you're going to shoot the cup. It kind of made me realize what happened there was, like, I had started surrounding myself with different types of people, generous people, people that were looking to connect. I had done that, but I wasn't doing it consciously. I was growing into that person. But what happened was that night, it was weird. I had done everything that I wanted to do and I felt kind of empty. I had gotten all the accolades. I had gotten all the success, but I hadn't built the relationships. Jim Carrey has a quote, which is, I wish everybody could become rich and famous so they could realize that it's not the answer. Now, mine wasn't money as much as it was accomplishment. And I had accomplished it. I really had an awful month or so of just like, what's happening here? More success is not going to change this more accolades. So I really had to really dive into this. And the Seth Godin's of the world about the generosity and about, he said something at an event that I went to right around that time where he goes, you're going to learn more from the people next to you than you are from us up on stage and how valuable the people around you are that you surround yourself with. And it's not necessarily the top influencers. Everybody can help anybody with something. And so that's where it kind of became a mission of mine of like, I want to connect people together. I want to bring great people together and build up the people around me. Every win in my life came from somebody doing something that helped me. And there was no expectation to it. They didn't come back to me like, well, I did that for you. Now do this for me. It wasn't that. It was these people that I wanted to become. So I was this person that a lot of people were admiring, but internally I wasn't admiring myself. I wanted to be more like that. And that's when the major shift happened. I really connect with this idea of accomplishment because I had a similar episode myself when I realized that I was financially independent. When I was armed with the tools to understand my own finances, I looked at my numbers and realized I didn't need to work anymore and could leave being a physician. And as opposed to that making me happy or excited, I actually got depressed and anxious. And it sounds almost like the same thing that happened to you when you shot the Stanley Cup. It's like, okay, I've accomplished this big audacious thing. And yet there's definitely something lacking. And what I eventually found what was lacking for me was community, Mm. was connection with other people. And it sounds like your journey was similar in that sense that you might have had these great accomplishments but you didn't have the relationships that would nurture you going further. Spot on. And that's what it felt like. I felt like I had gotten these things, but not what I was really craving. What would happen is I would go to parties and I would go to events and I was the clown in a way. Tell us the story about when you worked for the WWF and this happened. And when that wrestler threatened your life or when this happened, all these things, but it was nothing about me. And it was nothing about what I did for others. It was all about, I was almost like a vendor. I was like a comedian. I was the storyteller. It was empty. And then they would go to somebody else and it would be deeper conversations. And I was basically the one that had great stories. I fought for that. I wanted to be that for so many years because I wanted the accolades. And then when you get it, you realize there's just always a different level, another layer of the onion to peel back. And then you realize, you know, another Stanley Cup or another president is not going to do anything and I realized it was so self-involved. I think a lot of people are there because righteously so, you need to get to where you need to get to. You need to accomplish things for yourself. But when it gets to a certain point that it becomes who you are and it's more about your ego than it is about what you need, that's when the reality checks for you and me. But that was it for me. And then it became, who do I become the person that helps the person that I used to be? That's how worlds started colliding and blowing up and, and all this stuff's happened from there. 
I want to go back to what you said a few moments ago. You nonchalantly said, and then I met Seth Godin, and then continued on with your story. But it does beg the question, how did you find those helpers? How did you find those people to become aligned with that eventually built your community, especially in the beginning when you were just finding your way? There's no shortage of information right now, right? Who's ever listening is listening to this podcast. That's what I did. I read books. I heard Dave Ramsey on the radio in 2003 before he was, you know, Dave Ramsey. I started following that and that's helped us get out of debt when we paid off our house and everything, blah, blah, blah. So that was one hurdle, right? Get past the financial one. You think you made it? Nope. Didn't quite make it because now we don't have this. It always keeps going that way. And then from Dave Ramsey, I heard people like Andy Andrews and Dan Miller and Seth Godin on his show. And I'm like, I love the way this sounds. And I connected with all of them. And then eventually when you find mentors, here's what most people do wrong. They find mentors and then they want to get something from them. And they go, how can this person help me? And it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. And luckily I learned enough by now that I didn't do this for the most part, but it was like, how do I help them? How do I help them accomplish their goals? Even though they've had 16 best-selling books, I'm sure they'd love the next one to be spread more. So if you believe in something, you spread the message of the people that are teaching you. And what I learned was if you find a mentor and you have a goal and you use their teachings to accomplish that goal and you become successful and then you go give them credit for it, you can go and build anything you want. When I took that perspective of it, it was like, it was not about me. It was about giving credit to the people who have helped me. And even on social media to today, if you see me post about something, there might be an accomplishment of mine somewhere buried in there, but it's going to be crediting the people that helped me. If anybody ever watched Rocky, Rocky Four, Rocky Five, with Tommy Gunn, he's the perfect example of what not to do. You are young and you're green and you're learning and you find a mentor and that mentor puts the time in and they teach you and then you become successful and then you go and you forget that person. And so many people do that. They don't give the credit to that person. They don't validate them or spread their word. They then take it for their own ego and that's how you don't build those deep connections. I just gave credit. That, that was a big part of it. So to get a little more granular, it sounds like you consumed content, whether it be blogs or podcasts or radio shows or what have you, Books, yeah. found people that spoke to you yep. and approached them. And as opposed to asking for something, offered yourself in a relationship as opposed to asking them for some specific piece of advice or help. Yeah. And oftentimes they didn't even know that I was doing the things. You don't need to know the mentor to spread their word. You don't need to know the person personally to say, hey, you need to check out this podcast or here's a book that I read by this person that you need to read from what I'm hearing you struggling with. You know, work happens because people refer it. Everybody's like, oh, social media and blah, blah, blah. It amplifies it. They say people buy from you because they know, like, and trust you. I think it's because they know, love, and trust you. I don't think it's no like and trust. I think it's no love and trust. I'll give you the Seth story, which is, and it's not like we're buddies, but we know each other and he's helped me. And he endorsed my book. And I did ask because I had invested in a couple of his conferences. He got to know me a little bit. I asked and I was scared to ask for the endorsement. Sometimes you got to ask. And he endorsed it. And I was stunned. But his story that I tell over and over again is I went to thank him because when my book was published, we went on a thank you tour because I did not want to go on a book selling tour. I wanted to thank all the people that helped us and shared it and endorsed it. And he was in California in Orange County, Newport Beach. And I got to go to an event and hand him the book. And my kids made thank you cards for him with like little purple cows on it. It was adorable. And he said to me, how'd the book launch go? And I said, it went wonderful. I had no expectations. And he goes, that's perfect. Yeah, real serious. Never have any expectations when releasing a book. 
Now, so many people get that wrong. I'm going to be a bestseller. I didn't care. I wanted to write a book to help people. I give him the book and it's this crazy moment. He goes up on stage. It's being filmed and all these people and my books underneath his chair. And I'm kind of like fanboy. I'm like, I'm taking a picture of my book under his chair. That's like, it's far, you know, I'm all excited about that. And then I go to ask a question. This I think was a pivotal shift for me. I raised my hand to ask a question. And he said, Vincent, I'm the only one being called up by name. Vincent, tell us about your new book. And I got nervous. I was like, oh my God, I do not want to act like I'm doing this for my benefit. Like I didn't want, like, that's not why I'm here. And I said, I said, that's not why I'm raising my hand. He goes, I know, I know. And he said this, he goes, I'm just trying to get you some product placement. And he holds it up for the crowd. Somebody gets a picture for me and it's being recorded for this major event. And then I ask a question about homeschooling. I'm like, I'm not asking a business question to make it seem like that. It changed the way that I looked at it because Seth got absolutely nothing out of doing that. There was no like, oh, if I do this for him, I'm going to get this back. He did it because he said it even five minutes earlier, I believe generosity is always the answer. He could have said to me like, oh, you pay me this much, I'll hold it up on stage. I probably would have done it, right? But the way that he did it, I can't stop telling that story. Like I'm telling it to you. I tell everywhere because of the way that his integrity was. So it just reinforced this to me. So that's, to me, how the stuff grows and how to learn. It's clear that mentors, friendships, relationships can move you forward as a person, whether that be emotionally, intellectually, or towards your goals. Friends can also do the opposite, right? I mean, isn't it common for friends not to understand your dream? And what do we do with those types of friends? That's the hard part. I think friends are easier than family. I've heard it said before, there's two-minute friends, there's two-hour friends, there's two-week friends, there's two-month friends. Two-minute friends are the people at the bus stop that you will never hang out with, but they're friends and you're not going to blow them off and you're not going to be mean to them, but you know you can't have lunch with them, right? Because they're just going to complain about their spouse or get drunk or you know talk about politics, right? Can't, but you can nod and be nice. And then you have the two-hour friends who you can go to lunch with, but you're not going on a couple days with. Then you've got the two-day friends that you can go on a conference with, but after that, you're like, all right, okay, it's bad enough. And then you have the two-week friends who you could spend as much time with. And, and you have to know where your friends go into that category. For family, it's harder because you don't get to choose it. So you got to go to the in-laws and they're going to complain about everything. So I do the bobblehead. I learned this from Dave Ramsey. I do the bobblehead and I nod my head a lot and I'm very opinionated on things, but I've learned that they don't care about my opinion on these things. And it's not my job to try to change their mind any longer. I nod my head a lot and then I move on and I don't stress about it. And that's just, I think, maturing maybe, whether it's family, friends, or even listeners or fans, I'm not here to change your mind. I'm here to enhance the people that get what I'm talking about. And for everybody else, it's not for them. And once I came to that conclusion, it relieved a lot of stress in my life and a lot of tension because it's just not for them. And that's perfectly fine. And ultimately, you talked about, you know, the different duration of friends and two-week friends, but they're also friends of a lifetime or at least mentors Mm -hmm. and people that help you grow. And I've seen you say a few times the importance of friends who can see through your blind spots or friends that are not afraid to tell you the truth. Talk about why that's important in the community you build. I truly believe the line of wounds from a trusted friend are valuable. I believe that. I want people to call me out on my BS. I think there becomes the emperor has no clothes, no matter how big you are. That's the problem to me with success is you have these influencers that nobody will call them out except the haters, right? But there are people that have legitimate points against what some people are saying. 
for instance, I went to a conference recently and somebody did not know who I was, who I was, quote unquote, right? And I said something and they did not agree with what I said. It was very, I was just some other guy. And then the day later they found out, oh, I was the speaker and they had read my book and they loved it. And all of a sudden their demeanor changed. And it was very like kissing my butt. I'm like, no, don't do this now. Don't. If you have a challenge, challenge it. And I think that's the problem with success a lot of times is people will not tell you the truth because they're afraid of losing that association or being ostracized because they've challenged. You're two steps ahead of somebody in one area, but they're three steps ahead of you in another area. And I think keeping that balance and having people around you that will tell me, you know, you, you screwed up here. What about, why'd you do this? I like that. And I think I always have to like that. Otherwise you become insulated. This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships. I know because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was seven years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father, but since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own, and having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash earn. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? It was one of my favorite budgeting apps, but here's the problem. Mint is disappearing. Now we all are stuck with the question, how will we manage our budget and finances now? Well, I discovered Monarch Money, and I have to tell you, I found it simple, enjoyable, and made for users like me. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. There's so many great things about Monarch. One is it's intuitive. When I signed up, I went to the website, and within minutes... I had had all my accounts downloaded. I connected to all my banks. It is collaborative. It's not only made for people like me, but for people like me to then share it with my spouse or my financial advisor or what have you. And Monarch is so customer focused that they're always looking for ways to improve and make their product serve us better. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Would you take it a step further? I've heard you say before, if you really want to change your life, you have to change the kind of people you hang out with. Totally. It's very easy for me to disassociate myself with the wrong people. It's imperative, I think. Integrity is a big part to me. And I know a lot of influencers that could help in a lot of different ways 
But when you see certain ones that have a lack of integrity for my values, the connection's not as valuable. I disassociate myself because if my network doesn't have integrity in it, I'm compromised so much, almost all of what I believe in. So it doesn't mean being connected to the biggest to me. That's why I mentioned something like Seth, because I've seen it in so many different ways that integrity is a high value. I also connect to a lot of people where it's not and selling and money is, and those things will be sacrificed. Well, I am perfectly fine moving on from those relationships and not using them to my advantage because it's not to my advantage if this is the way that I want to build it. I'm not sure if I explained it well. I want to jump off this point and talk a little bit about integrity and accountability because there's a cost to investing in such things. And in fact, I was listening to episode 217 of your podcast called Remodeling Your Life. And do you mind talking to us a little bit about it? I mean, it was a person who you felt were not being accountable and you discuss your conversation with them. Yeah, it was a person in my life. Um, I'd known him for years and he had a lot of excuses, a lot of reasons why things couldn't get done. He came to me for guidance on a lot of things and couldn't do the stuff, wouldn't do the stuff. I'm a challenger. I could be very pushy and I could be pushy in a way that you've asked for it. We're going to go. I don't knock on your door and start telling you what to do. That's not what I do. It's when people come to me and they come to me for accountability. They want growth. They want to learn things. But this was excuses. And this was, I don't have time. And literally, I will sit down. I'll tell you the reasons why I don't have time. Just all the reasons why it couldn't be done. So we disassociated because not just in terms of friendship, but I'm not spending my time on it. And you shouldn't spend your time on it because it's not a priority. And then I saw, this is the beauty of social media. I saw a post where didn't know this, but for four months, you know, they've been remodeling a part of their house and the money and the time. And I, and I was like, you know, and I sent a message because we've done this back and forth. And I said, what are you talking about? You told me all these things, all the reasons why you couldn't do this stuff, literally laid it out there. And he got mad and like, I don't want to discuss this. And that was pretty much the end of it. That's not an easy conversation to have. There's times where I might not have gotten involved at all, but it was so blatantly obvious what you learn from there is who it's for and who it's not for. And it was obvious that what I do is not for people like that. And there's a lot of people like that. What I do is very specific in terms of people that want to make the change. They're willing to remodel their life instead of remodeling a room in their house. And you've got to be able to pick a side. And if you try to please everybody, you'll please nobody. So I know exactly who belongs in my tribe and exactly who doesn't. Doesn't mean they're bad. Doesn't mean they're wrong. It means that you don't get to play here. I've seen you say that if you want to arrive on Dream Island, you have to build the bridge. Yes. And as you're telling that story, I think about if people are really willing to build that bridge. And for the friend you were talking about there, he certainly wasn't. And that bridge. Yeah. And it sounds like that bridge is made of people, it's made of skills, it's made of energy and intention. And maybe sometimes people aren't ready to be accountable for all those things. Without a doubt, because you have to overcome your own fears. And it's not just them. It's We have a spouse. Does my spouse believe that I can do it? Is it inconveniencing our lifestyle? You know how many people I talk to that have a dream of doing kind of what we talk about, but they make too much money? I've had this conversation three times in the last week. How do I give up the lifestyle for this? And obviously you can't because you're not willing to do that. I have to be willing to give up my night's and not going out partying to go to a baseball game by myself to learn from these photographers. You need to be able to give up something to get something. 
if you can't give up your lifestyle to live this life that you want that's the next level, then you're not ready yet. The bridge I talk about a lot of times is people want this dream life. We're on the road for three months. We're going to Hilton Head today for a month. Well, we didn't just start this way. I started by doing free coaching calls and I got better at coaching and then they didn't get results. I had to learn how to be better at it. That was my bridge. I started a community and it wasn't the best group of people. Just like before, like the Buccaneers, I had to be willing to get rid of the people that weren't doing the work and attract people that wanted to do the work and build it from there. And I had a good friend of mine tell me one time about like, even within masterminds, you've got to be willing to get rid of the threes, fours, and fives to keep the eights, nines, and tens. And a lot of people keep the three, fours, and fives because it pays the bills and they're steady. But the three, fours, and fives bring down the eight, nines, and tens, meaning in terms of level. Those people, the great ones are going to leave because they're dragged down by the middle ones. I want to get rid of the middle ones. No offense, it's not personal. You got to think of it like a team. You don't just get to be on the Patriots. You've got to earn it and stay there. Even the last two years has been developed. This is not what I did for a living, right? This is learned through time. And I want to talk about that learning a little bit. Did I see that you spend about 10% of your gross revenues on courses and networking and building community? At least, yeah. Public speaking is the next area that we're doing Financial Freedom Summit together. Like speaking is the next avenue for me to grow to amplify this. And it was a very pricey but valuable mentorship program with Michael and Amy Port from Heroic Public Speaking. And I'm thrilled to spend all that money. I know a lot of people like, you know, oh, I can't afford that. I don't ever look at it that way. Are there certain programs you could join and they're a ripoff or whatever? They don't, they're not that sure. But that's the whole thing of finding who your right mentors are. And when you trust people enough and you follow them enough and you get testimonials and people having success from them, yeah, I mean, conferences, courses, coaches, masterminds, I'm always looking. But how do you reinvest 10% of billions? Like, I don't know how you could even do that, but I know how you could do it now. But I know people that don't even invest 1% or 2%. That's the other part of this that we haven't even spoken of. Like, it's such a weird conversation. My friend, Bill Convos, he said, I pay to get to the front. I did a podcast about this. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, I don't wait in line when I go to a game. I'm like, tell, tell me more. What are you talking about? There's 25 people. He goes to the front of the line. He goes, can I pay for your food if you buy me a hamburger and a soda? I'm like, of course. That time is way more valuable. I feel the same way in terms of business. If there's people that are going somewhere, I want to pay. I joined John Lee Dumas' mastermind. I want to learn from people who are doing the things that I want to do. You can get some from the podcast, but you know, I feel the same way with my business. I'll give you all the information for free. That's why I do a daily podcast. What you pay me for is access and implementation so we can go to your problems in real time. I want the same thing with the people that I'm trying to learn from. It all comes down to, it seems in the end, that you can always find the information on how to be successful if you look hard enough. But what really takes is finding the people who will help you get there. Yes, very much. I just want people to understand this. It's not even just who the people are. It's their network as well. If I invest in a program that's $26,000 for speaking, who else am I hanging around with? I don't think people think about this. Other people that can afford to spend $26,000 on a speaking program. Well, what do you think is going to happen to them? They're probably going to go a lot farther than the person that's not doing it. What do you think is going to happen to them? They're going to get probably lucrative speaking deals quickly. Maybe not quickly, but what's going to happen when they get asked about a speaking deal that they can't do? Who are they going to refer that to? People that are in their network that have done the same thing that they've done. That's how the rich get richer, the connected get more connected. And otherwise, you're on the outside looking in, just scraping like I always did in the past. 
get yourself around the people who are doing what you want to do and everything amplifies. So let's bring this conversation full circle. We started talking about the moment you had that conversation with your father about photojournalism and how it changed your life. Through that lens, how are you talking to your own kids about community and the type of people that they surround themselves with? Well, we talk about it almost every day. We homeschool and we travel a lot. So there's times where it's more disconnected. They don't go to a school every day. I think it's good because a lot of times I was lumped into school with classmates that I had no choice, but I had to spend the entire year with them. I didn't connect with them. I didn't like a lot of them, but I had no choice. They have more of a choice, but they see it in this world. We wanted to put them in a world that's what's going to be like what they grow up, which is when you're 14, you don't just hang out with 14-year-olds. That's what school is. But when you're an adult, I don't know how old you are, Doc. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is, can we have a great conversation together? You could be 26 or you could be 90. School, I think it trains us to think 14-year-olds are my peers and 15-year-olds are idols and 13-year-olds are idiots. That's the way I grew up. So we don't have that. So we have a lot of conversations about the friends that they hang around with, not just kids, but adults, how people portray themselves, how people have integrity, how people are honest. I don't know if you saw on social media, we went to New Orleans a couple of days ago and my wife got her phone stolen from her. And we came back and we saw her. And my wife said, you have my phone because we knew it was her. She put her arm around her for a picture and it was gone. And she's like, was it me? And I was like, I have a picture. We took a picture. And she goes, oh, that's right. You dropped it. And she pulls it out of her pocket. How we ever got it back? I can't believe it actually happened. What's the odds of that happening? But you know how many conversations we had about honesty and integrity? And Dylan, our youngest, like, why didn't you ask her why she didn't give your phone back? He's so innocent. It's like, no, we knew why she didn't give the phone back. She didn't want to give it back. In real life, we get to talk about these are the people you hang around with that you choose to or you don't choose to. But you've got to be okay not choosing the people that don't lift you up and make you better. And I want to bring in your business a little bit into this conversation also. I noticed that you offer different types of conversations for people and interested in engaging in your platform. You have an elite mastermind, but there's also the general total life freedom community. Who are those different communities for? Who is more appropriate for the mastermind and who would probably fit better just in the general community? Yeah, the mastermind, you are an entrepreneur, you are building a business and you're looking to grow that business. You are not questioning it. You are not, do I start this? I'm struggling with, we're all struggling with something, but you're coming in and you are like, I want to be around other people doing this and I want to enhance this and I want to you know, make the business more effective, more profitable, more helpful. Like that was our conversation today. They're two hour masterminds. I've been in ones that were one hour. They never felt long enough to me. It's once a week, it's two hours, it's deep. We dive in, we, we solve problems, we connect. Even within there, so much business has happened because when you build that trust, other people are like, I want to work with you. So there's business actually happening. It's not a BNI where you have to do anything, but we have Jennifer Harshman who does book editing. She's gotten so many clients that are writing books from within the community. But if you're quiet and you're not helpful, you will not get the work and you will eventually fade away. Just like I said, the three, fours, and fives will leave. Eight, nines, and tens will advance. We have three masterminds for that weekly. And then we have the community, which are people that are building businesses, growing business. A couple of people are just thinking about starting a business. So it's not as intense, but we have wins and goals. Like you said, we have accountability. We have content. I do monthly themes in terms of the 80-20 rule or all these different things that they need to do to advance their business, building a powerful network. And then we have a lower, lower level, which is less money, but it's just content and replays of calls. So just like we talked about, you can be in at different levels. The last two are application only, 
I wouldn't want to be a part of a group that anybody could just join without being vetted. That's a big part of it because then all of a sudden it ruins the culture. The one negative person will bring down the level of a group. I have a saying, either step up and raise your game to be an influence and inspiration to the group. You will be asked to leave or you will quit. Just like we talked about before. So I'm not this mean every day, but when I explain it, I want to be able to make sure if you are not in this, you're not even going to apply which people in the group appreciate because it really is making sure that it's a safe group for people that want to do this. It's not about growth and getting as big as possible. It's about getting as good as possible. And that's part of the accountability of the group is if you're not going to stand up, participate and hold yourself accountable, then maybe you don't belong in the group in the first place. And that's fine. And I'm not mad about it. What it does, it frees up space for the person that really does want to do that. Any last piece of advice for someone struggling, reaching their dreams? I know it's a big question, but where do they start? I truly believe that you need to have a vision for what you want to do. You need to have the drive to do it. And you need to surround yourself with the people that not only are going to help you get there, but that you help getting there. Because we didn't discuss it too much, but generosity, you know, going back to Seth, when you're generous with the people around you, I love to promote other people's stuff. I do. We don't do it enough. You know, we'll promote an athlete or promote a team, but we won't promote the people in our lives. And I think that's crazy. When you do that, people appreciate it and they notice it and it builds up goodwill and they want to go and do it for other people. My goal is to make the business world a better place. It's not just about profit and success. And I learned this because I was as selfish as you could possibly be. So I need to fight back on my selfishness to create something like this. So I'm the perfect person to teach this because I have to study it every day. So it sounds like generosity, integrity, community all parts of what will make you successful and probably a happier person all around. It's been a great pleasure having this conversation with you, Vincent. Why don't you tell us where can we find you and what's up next in your life? Most fun thing for me right now is I do a daily podcast called the Total Life Freedom Podcast. It's a daily five to eight minute. There's no intro, there's no outro, there's no ads, there's no music. I just go and I stop. I tell you a story. Hopefully there's a takeaway from it. So Total Life Freedom Podcast and totallifefreedom.com is our website where we have all the podcasts there, information about the groups. So totallifefreedom.com. And I will say that five to eight minute podcast every day is so worth those few minutes of your time. So if you have not checked it out before, it is a very, very worthwhile, high quality use of your time. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Vincent Puglisi. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So I'm happy to have Diana Miriam back on the show. Wow, Diana, this is such a different time, it feels like, than the three weeks ago, or was it two weeks ago? It seems like it's longer than it probably was that we did the Economy Conference. Today is March 23rd. The world looks a little different today than it did a few weeks ago, doesn't it? Well, that's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. It looks very different. And I cannot stress how grateful I am 
that the economy conference was the day that it was because really just one week later on the 13th, the university shut down for a month. So I really would have been forced to cancel it had it been just one weekend later. It's amazing the evolution of how we felt about this virus. When we went to economy, it was a nagging worry in the back of my mind, but certainly it didn't seem like at that point it was reasonable to not go out of town. We weren't really socially distancing other than washing our hands, not touching our face, and obviously trying to keep a little bit of personal distance. I feel like everything changed almost a week to the day later. It seems like about a week after the conference, all of a sudden we were hearing more about the virus and every other conference in the area sounded like it was starting to shut down. Absolutely. Yeah, it was an interesting chain of events. I mean, even the week leading into economy, I was getting a number of questions on, you know, what's your plan? What are you going to do? And I, you know, I try to stay away from the media. I have kind of an inherent distrust of the media. I think it's just, I watch how fast they pump out information and so many inaccuracies that I see makes me kind of shy away from the media hoopla. But I'm really fortunate in that I'm surrounded by people much smarter than me, especially people in the medical community. And so I was consulting, you know, the doctors and nurses in my family within the fire community and really trying to get good information on what is this all about and what should I be doing? And at the time, uh, the thought was that, you know, this is just like a Zika or SARS or bird flu. You know, it's a scare just like that have hand sanitizer. That's your plan. There's no reason to cancel this. There's no reason for concern. Um, And so I made the best decision I could make with the information I had at the time. But obviously, in the last couple of weeks, things have, have really changed. I feel very lucky that I didn't have to cancel my event, but I really feel for all of the event planners out there that have to cancel or postpone. I would have been completely devastated if I had to do that. So I really feel for them. One thing to note is that we as healthcare practitioners, I'm a physician and certainly there are a lot of doctors involved in this community. We as a group changed our tune too in that last week where everything seems to have turned around. Most of us felt like the risks were still manageable and then all of a sudden they weren't anymore. I think the news out of Italy really swayed people as well as seeing some of the public health moves that were taking place in the United States at the time. But at that time too, when the economy was going on, most of us physicians just didn't feel like the risk was that apparent that we now feel it is. Totally agree. And I mean, I even had a conversation this week with Lynn Frere, who, you know, her hospital is really on the front lines in Washington. I think they have more cases than anywhere else in the country. And, you know, just kind of being able to hear from her firsthand the realities of it. I mean, it is, I'm taking it much more seriously than I was back then. Um, And I think most of us are, you know, and the, the people who aren't taking it seriously, I have to wonder, does it have to do with the distrust of the media? You know, I think when you cry wolf so many times when something's actually really serious, do people not believe you? I'm seeing a lot online, people complaining about others not socially distancing, not taking it seriously. And you have to wonder, you know, the dynamic that may have created that distrust. 
And I guess the big fear too is the economy. So a lot of people say, well, there is some risk, but what is the greater risk of shutting down the economy? So I'm in Chicago and Illinois is on shelter in place as well as New York, California. A number of states are following suit. The question is, at what point does the health of the economy itself become a problem? And I I think it's a difficult question, right? So do we protect a small number of people and find that the economy collapses and then a large number of people are poor and homeless and end up having devastation for other reasons. I know that's one of the arguments to be less aggressive. I don't personally agree with that argument, but I see where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to the economy, obviously there's going to be huge sweeping effects that we'll feel for a long time. However, I think there's so much that we don't know about this virus and how serious it could be. It seems like, oh, why protect such a small piece of the population or who could be most affected by this? But we don't actually know that. If half the population is wiped out by this thing, which sounds very doomsday, but at that point, the economy doesn't really matter. I think there's too many unknowns to say like what's more important, the economy or the health of a certain segment. I think that people, again, are doing the best they can and making the best decisions they can with the information that's available. And I'm starting to really think that the health of the economy and the health of our people are really intimately tied together. And sometimes we forget that. So we say, oh, we're killing the economy by being overzealous. But if we are less zealous and this has widespread effects on our elderly, that also affects middle-aged and young people as we don't have hospital beds or ICUs or we don't have the resources we need for the economy to be healthy also. So it's a complicated picture. And I think as times go on further, I start realizing that they're really one and the same issue. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I also think that, you know, within every crisis breeds opportunity. And that doesn't sound like not a lot of people want to hear that, right? When when you're talking about people dying. But yeah, I've worked from home for almost three years and watching all of my colleagues now need to adjust to that. Different ways of working, different ways of communicating and being together and getting our needs met. I think it really brings to light maybe some areas of our infrastructure that really need a shakeup. I'm really curious to see what comes out of this in degree of innovation in, you know, in our economy and our society and the way that we value how we're using our time, the nature of work, all that kind of stuff. I, I think that this has an opportunity to really shake all of that up. Education too. One thing I've been watching with my children is some of these e-learning techniques that they're using because they can't go to school will probably be integrated into the regular curriculum and will become a part of their education in the future. It's complicated. Yeah. (laughs) It really is complicated. The other side of it is if we do the public health things that do slow this progression down rapidly and we are able to get back to normal there's always a surge in confidence when things do eventually work out right. And that could bolster the economy, maybe help the stock market. So we never know what's going to happen. If we come out of this looking good and victorious, it certainly would be great for the economy. On the other hand, I think we all feel like you have to be careful Let's talk about your schedule. I know my schedule was packed for the next three months. I had all these talks I was supposed to give. I had all these conferences I was supposed to go to. And now nothing. Tell me about yours. 
Um, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I had a lot of travels booked for, you know, I just canceled my vacation that was supposed to happen in, in two weeks, which I was really looking forward to. A lot of events that I'm supposed to attend both in the fire space as well as my professional world. A lot of that is canceled, but I'm still planning economy 2021. I actually, you guys will be the first to know that it looks like the date's going to be August 6th and 7th. And are you already starting to work on speakers for that? I know that's that this right. is, that's a big part of it, right? Is you oh, got to yeah, start that's planning a huge early. Part of it. That's a huge part of it. So I actually, I like that it's pushed out a bit. I think it's kind of a nice thing to be, you know, people got to see Cincinnati in the spring this year and we had a beautiful weekend, but now you'll get to kind of see summer in Cincinnati. I like the idea of kind of shifting it around different times of year. I'm still very excited about Economy 2021. I'm hoping that there's probably going to be some interesting content that comes out of this um, experience. And I think people will be really surprised to see what they see on the economy stage in 2021. And tell me, how do you think planning for this will be different knowing what you know now? Obviously, the first time you plan a conference is complicated enough, so you're going to come in for your second year with a lot more knowledge. But this COVID issue, I imagine, will change how you think about things going into the conference, especially when you're like T minus two months or T minus one month. Do you think you're going to have more anxiety than you had before? I think that planning the second year is going to be a hell of a lot easier than it was the first year. The first year I spent 20 months and a lot of it was like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what worked. But now I have all this data to work with. I'm in the middle of writing this postmortem report, which is basically every single activity that I took from a marketing perspective, logistics, programming, target market. I'm analyzing every little thing that I did, what worked, what didn't work, and what do I want to change for next year. So I've got some big changes that I'm making. The first year was incredible. I'm thrilled with how it turned out, but it can be better and it will be better next year. Do you care to tickle any of your early insights of what some of those changes might be? One thing I'm really thinking about, what I've noticed is how much I invested in marketing to students. I spent a lot of money. I hired an on-campus communications agency that was student-led. I was doing guest lecturing almost every day leading up to the event. We plastered the campus with posters. We gave away 2,000 flyers over the course of four weeks. I mean, it was a very labor-intensive marketing campaign to students, and we probably had less than 30 show up. And that was considering all the sponsored tickets that I gave away. I gave away free tickets myself. I had volunteering opportunities. i just not sure that the college kids... I mean, I would get in front of a group of 200 kids in a lecture hall, and I'd get one that was like really interested. I think they're almost representative of the general population in that this is still a pretty niche concept. I think that when I was that age, I thought I was going to be, you know, a millionaire one day and my student loan debt didn't matter. And all of this stuff about money and managing money wasn't going to matter when I was making my millions. Like that was the attitude that I had. And so I think a lot of young people, they just haven't felt the pain of financial decisions yet. And maybe that's why they're not interested. However, I don't want to give up on young people because again, I wish I would have known about this stuff when I was that age. And so I think I'm going to switch gears a little bit and focus on uh, trade schools and people who, the tradespeople like electricians, plumbers, HVAC, steel workers. There's a lot of unions around here that, you know, do the certifications. And I think that that niche market would be really interested in these kind of unconventional ideas, especially because they don't really subscribe to 
what is a prestigious job. You know, I think they're more mindful of return on investment when it comes to their education. Two years certified electrician is making six figures. It's a great career path that I think is maybe underserved by the fire community. So that's really interesting to me to focus on the trades, especially when you think about that one of the fastest paths to financial independence is real estate. And they are uniquely positioned to use their skill sets to to capitalize on that. So I'm really excited about kind of shifting gears when it comes to focusing on on young people and students. And I want to give it a try. I mean, maybe it does have to do with age and it doesn't really have to do with trades versus a traditional college student. But I think it's worth a try. I think that that target market could be pretty interesting. One of the exciting things too is just to see how much buzz on social media economy got and will hopefully get as the videos come out with the talks. I know you're going to be releasing those. And as that builds, hopefully you'll get the national interest that will bring people to Cincinnati above and beyond the locals and people from the trade schools and students. So it's really, really exciting. I know I thoroughly enjoyed the conference. I walked away thinking, man, that is a well put together event. Every person I saw there seemed to really enjoy it. So if People want to stay up to date with economy, especially if they are like me, sheltering in place because of COVID-19. How can they stay up to date and know what's going on with the Economy Conference for 2021? Absolutely. So if you go to economyconference.com, we actually just added a page that's being reworked a little bit right now, but it's a 2020 recap. So you can kind of get a sense of how the day went. There's lots of photos and stuff that we're sharing. I just looked at um, some rough cuts of the videos this week. So we're in post-production now and they look amazing. I cannot wait to release these videos. So we're working really hard to try to release them probably the first or second week of April which will be great. And we're releasing them completely for free. Um, so anyone can can view those speeches if they weren't able to attend the event, or if you'd like to relive the event, feel free to watch those. So I just started a YouTube channel. All the videos will be up on YouTube. And then we will be kind of giving each video its own like newsletter and treatment for additional resources that we'll include with each video and ways that you can learn more from each speaker. So I cannot wait to release the videos. And I'm also be, um, if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll be the first to see that stuff. And you can also follow us on social media. We are Economy Conference on Facebook, Economy Con on Instagram and Twitter. Diana Miriam, thank you for coming back. It is the Economy Conference. 2021 will most likely be spectacular. Certainly 2020 was. Thank you for joining me today and stay safe. Thanks so much. You too. Cool. Awesome. What'd you think? How'd it go? I thought it went really well. Again, I think we don't talk enough about this idea of who we surround ourselves with and who we make our community. And it's something that's always been on my mind quite a bit. And although you and I don't spend hours and hours talking to each other, you know, I've had the privilege of listening to some of your podcasts, of seeing you on social media and reading some of your content. And you just hit me as the guy to have that conversation with. And so it's a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time. And I like how your history, your storytelling really shows how important this is becoming your life. Because I agree with 100% 
a lot of what you talk about. I agree, and this kind of gets back to me in my childhood. Like when I moved from one city to another, those things I learned from being around different types of people changed me and changed my life. And to see that you can intentionally build these communities around yourself, right? I happened into these communities because I was a little kid and I kind of mm-hmm. moved to where I was. Maybe I was lucky enough to realize what they were teaching me. Um, but now as an adult to intentionally move into those type of communities and grow with them. And as you were saying, the, the great thing about a good community is you end up achieving a hell of a lot more, but probably the achievement is not the full value as we were talking about. The value is the generosity, the connections, the promoting other people as they promote you. That probably lasts far longer than all those achievements, which we enjoy and we're happy to have, and they give our life meaning and fulfillment. But uh, that other piece means so much. It's so spot on. I think people don't realize it until they get there. You know, I think even when I do keynotes, I want to play like the Rod Stewart song, which is like, I wish I knew what I know now when I was younger, right? Because we're so focused on achievement and success. And if you talk to older people, that's not, yeah, you want that and it's nice and, and you prove that to yourself and you help, but it really comes down to this. And this is, I'm in the process of constantly learning this and reevaluating it. So I, I think this is a higher level conversation and I think it's, it's so nice to bring that as opposed to like, how do I build my email list? Right. How do I get yeah. Yeah. Which, which undoubtedly I could have a great conversation with you about too. But to me, I'm always looking for like that graduate level, right? So yep. I think the college level or, or maybe the master's degree level is talking about how you specifically build that life. I think that PhD level is like, why? Yes. Yeah. So everything I did, all my stories, and I'm literally writing my next book about this. All my stories, as I look back on it, it was me. At least I thought it was me. I'm sorry. Hold on one second. Did you hear that? Yeah. (laughs) Let me just pause for one second. Hold on one second. Yeah, go ahead. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.